Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Uh, we produce ridiculous challenges that, you know, put your back up against the wall and hopefully make you a better person. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Joe DeSena. You you created something that I think a lot of uh, a lot of our people would recognize, and that is the uh, Spartan race. Um, but you did a couple things before that as well, right? So first, give us a brief introduction, and then we'll jump into some of your background. Yeah, sure. Joe DeSena here, CEO and founder of Spartan. Uh, we produce ridiculous challenges that you know put your back up against the wall and hopefully make you a better person i grew up in queens and new york many many years ago i'm 54 happy to get into that if, you, if you'd like yeah i mean uh so you grew up in in queens when it was a uh i guess working class town right and- grew up in organized crime capital of the world <laughs> yeah if you saw uh, Goodfellas, it was ground zero for, for that movie. And how was that? I mean, it, it's – do you still live in New York now? I don't live in New York now. We have a farm up in Vermont, and I shuttle between um, Vermont and Florida. My wife um, pulled the plug on Vermont. She's now here in Florida with the kids, and we've got them in a school. She thinks, you know, it's good to have them in a normal setting where they can – do sports and stuff, but I most of their life we were up in Vermont chopping wood and mm. taking cold showers and skiing. Um, but back, go. Let's go back to Queens. Queens was a crazy place. It was, you know, it was energized. There were a lot of people, whether they were doing good or bad, they were up early in the morning. And if you didn't have a hustle, if you didn't have that extra step in your, you know. When you were walking, if you didn't have that kick, you you were left behind. And so I got sucked up into that and that energy. And it made me it made me who I am. I think I think if I had grown up around a bunch of great basketball players, then I would have attempted to be a, a basketball. Right. Whoever you grew up around, that environment shapes shapes your life. So for me, it was it was action, hard work and don't complain about anything. Just just deal with it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> that hustler attitude, you know, I, I feel like it gets some, – some people feel like it's intrinsically bad, right? But it's just one form of motivation. It, it's, you know, applied correctly, I don't think, 
you could make the case that it's bad. I mean, you're, so you were kind of an entrepreneur from a very young age, right? Yeah, I can't, I can't see if it's bad. I mean, I guess, I guess there, there are probably a bunch of people out there that would prefer everybody to just be a little slower and dumber. And, you know, I don't want I'm not a conspiracy guy, but like, I don't know. I'd rather be, I'd rather be, you'd probably rather be around a bunch of hustlers around a bunch of people that just work hard, have high energy. Who wants to be around people that don't have energy that don't, that aren't like exciting you um, to do something. I remember convincing my friends at a young age to, to play hooky because we were going to dig up a park and create a BMX track. <laughs> and when I reflect back on it now, although it was terrible and my father got yelled at and I got yelled at, you can't do that. Um, I think it was exciting that I was able to excite these kids to, um, to create something that day. Does that make sense? Yeah, or? for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. We, we, so I, I appreciate your wife's perspective on wanting a semi-normal childhood school experience because of the socialization part. But I also think uh, to some stuff that Elon Musk has said about how, <clears throat> you know, and to your point, we do tend to teach the lowest common denominator because it's uh, it's a it's a corporal form of teaching, right? I mean, we have we're, we're, it's an assembly line, which is not really it, that's certainly not the most efficient, or the, it may be the most efficient, but it's not the best way to educate people. Uh, and I think his idea was we should teach to the level of the individual student. Now you can't teach each student individually, but you can promote them ahead of their peers and stuff. And I, I a hundred percent, if you put like a, a, a 10 year old in a classroom with a bunch of 16 year olds, that's going to be a problem socially. We've seen that with kids that go to, to university too early, but um, there is something to that, right? I mean, they, they make some attempt with the honors classes and stuff like that, but even I was in those classes when I was in middle and high school and they were boring as shit. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've never heard it said the way you just said it, which I got in Queens, the, the nine and 10 and 11 year olds, we were we were hanging out on the street with the 16 year old. Mm -hmm. And so we were we were getting educated at that level. When I look at my kids now, my oldest is 18. I feel like I was there at 13. Mm -hmm. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I was actually having a conversation with somebody about this the other day about this is my opinion. It's been my experience. It's been the experience of my friends, and I've seen the inverse of it both in my later years in the military and now as, as somebody who's a leader and sees young kids, you know, kind of going through it these days. I think you mature at the age you are required to mature, right? And delaying that process doesn't do society any favors, and it doesn't do the individual any favors either, frankly. Like, the, exposing them to, like, more and more responsibility and stress into their early to late teen years, I think is a really important part of becoming an adult. And it's the reason people are living at home until 25 to 30 now and not doing some of the stuff that we did when we were younger. Yeah. And it's, and it's a tough challenge because if, if, if we were able to, if you and I were able to snap our fingers and say, okay, we all agree it's better. Let's push the kids at a younger age. Let's expose them at a younger age. The problem is the devices, the device, it makes it very, very challenging because it's so addictive. I see it in my house. I have a lot of kids in my house, not just my own, but mm. everybody seems to hang out there from the neighborhood and they are just staring at the device. In the same and room I, with each other, staring at devices, it, right? It's crazy. And I'm, and I'm a crazy parent. 
and I'm fighting with them. And I'm tack. I tackled my son last night and we're fighting over the phone. My daughter, like it's a, it's a problem. So how do you remedy that? I mean, obviously we we were, we were kind of latchkey kids, right? Like our parents were working. So we had to go out into the woods and play and, and take some risk and shit like that. It just kind of developed naturally. Uh, And, and you've, sort of not just entrepreneurially speaking but with spartan especially made kind of a career out of uh what is this like intentional suffering if you want to call it that i guess uh so i don't i'm we're having a really hard time replicating that onto this new generation and a half or two generations yeah i look again i'm doing some unique things that we don't see around the world, making the kids carry kettlebells a couple of miles, having them climb mountains, run marathons at eight years old. Like even with all that stuff that, you know, anybody listening is saying this guy's a crazy person. My kids are still, as I just described, staring at these phones. So how do we change it nationally, globally? How do we do that? You're going to have to get together with the device makers, which will never get done. If, If I had my way, if you had your way, right? it would be so simple because this thing is so addictive because it's basically infected everybody. It, it can be used to do what we want, which is it just goes black unless the kid does 30 burpees. It goes black until they snap a picture of eating a salad. It goes black unless they take, you know, a math test or, or another language test. like you could use this to level up the kids, but instead, it's going in the other. It's going in the other direction. I haven't seen that app yet. No, no that doesn't exist. I mean, that se- that seems like it would be pretty easy to program, even if it was just like uh, acti- activity through an Apple Watch or some whatever other watches there there are. Or um, you know, there are plenty of gamified like math and science pro- apps now for kids and for adults as well. Language software and all this stuff. We just nobody's made that next step into into tying it into the entertainment. And I think not just leveling the kid up, but establishing the relationship between effort and outcome, effort and reward is a very good lesson to learn in those formative years as well. And we've kind of these days, it's so easy to get some French fries and an iPad and be like, hey, stop crying here to shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? And it's it's, sometimes you got to let them go through it. Right. It's hard because because, you know. If you don't have the phone and the how the kids don't have the phone, then the feeling is, well, everybody's got a phone and they don't have a phone. And that's a little weird. I was I was in the living room with the kids on Sunday. They got done wrestling and one of their friends was over and he, he carried over an Xbox and attempted to plug it in. And they were going to and I, I took it and I threw it on the porch. But <laughs> you could only do that so many times before your house and your kids become the weird ones. Yeah, you're Luddites now, right? Yeah, exactly. During during the the summer, I'm lucky. We have something called Death Camp we put on on the farm in Vermont. And I get about 100 kids from around the world with open-minded parents. And I'll take their phones for two weeks straight, which is awesome. But that's only two weeks. Mm. You know, I, I started a new thing on Thanksgiving, no phones on holidays. So that's another couple of days. But... Yeah, I'd love I mean, schools, by the way, schools should you should you should have to hand in your phone in the morning when you walk, do 30 burpees, hand in your phone, take a quick cold shower and then get ready for school. What do you think happened to that in public education? I know a lot of stuff 
like people do have these conspiratorial ideas a lot and some of them are true like the the idea that public education is a an assembly line to create you know non uh uh, uh disruptive docile employees i there's no question because rockefeller ford all the people that set the education system up in the early part of the 20th century said that specifically but we had the presidential physical fitness test that was run by arnold schwarzenegger for a while right we had all these uh, we had dodgeball i mean they're like I, when i was in high school middle and high school we had to do things we had to run a mile whatever right um I, I can't figure out why that has evaporated from the curriculum other than maybe just safetyism i don't i don't know what it is exactly but so it's i don't think there's anything conspiratorial i think it's its incompetence to be honest yeah i think what happens when i when i look at my own i had to give a speech recently uh, to some folks at Norwich University. It's the oldest private military college. And I had their board there. I had their uh, alumni, their, their their large donors. And I said, you know, Norwich is very similar to Spartan, right? We started with these these wild ideas where we're going we're gonna to train people, we're going to put them through hell, and we're going to make them better in the process. But I would imagine, not knowing Norwich very well, but knowing Spartan, that you have to make compromises along the way tiny little compromises like, hey, Joe, we could no longer have the gladiators at the finish line because that's too dangerous. Hey, Joe, the insurance company wants to change this. Hey, Joe, this sponsor said this, right? And you start making these little seemingly insignificant compromises along the way to make it scalable, like public education, Mm -hmm. to make it safe, to make sure uh, people stop complaining. And you wake up one day and you're like, this is not what we started. <laughs> How the hell did this happen? And so, look, I'm sure there were some parents complaining about PE. I'm sure some finance folks were complaining about PE. I'm sure the insurance folks were complaining about like, and then and then you get rid of PE and you wake up, you know, 30 years later and we've got a big problem. That's a big, that's a big, uh, mistake it's a huge no-no in business right to scale beyond your capacity or beyond your purview or beyond your total addressable market or whatever right like we i've seen businesses do this before and completely collapse it's like oh we've got two percent market share now imagine what we could do with six let's get enough inventory for six and like well you don't have that market bro it's like that that doesn't exist so now you're fucked um but what generally happens is when when production capabilities and total addressable market intersect at some point there's a diminishing return right always whether it, like we we had this problem with some of our optics in the military back in the day they started mass producing them because c- civilians wanted to buy them now right so instead of making 13 or 14,000 a year now they're making like 60,000 a year and we're having to send them back cuz they're fucked up all the time we're doing that with our kids we're doing this with education. Like this, this seems pretty important to make sure that the next generation is going to be okay and able to take care of themselves. And everybody wants to talk shit about Gen Z and and all this, but I mean, if anything, we we failed these people. It's not. I can't. It's hard to blame them. Well, what's interesting is is um, I've lived around the world. We 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 moved from the farm we, as we were building Spartan and and attempting to scale. We had a moment in time in our family where we could go live in Singapore for a year and Tokyo for a year and China for a moment and 
we lived in Vancouver and we were in different schools all along the way. And so I've, I've got the purview of seeing a lot of different school systems. And I will tell you, it's not that it can't be done. You can have education that performs, you know, an educational system that performs, checks all the boxes that you and I would be proud of, but it's just not being done for the masses. It's being done for the few. We're in a school now. I'm so, you know, luck. We're so lucky that to be part of. It. We just found it randomly here mm-hmm. in Florida, and you know, it was run by an admiral. It's it's got uh, very very tight rules. It's got lots of uh, PE. You know, it, it really celebrates sports. And they do one thing that's amazing. That if every school did this, it would change everything. Which is all day long as my four kids are in that school and they're handed in their homework, I see real time how they did on that homework. Did they get a two out of 10? Did they get a 10 out of 10? Where do they stand with their... So real time, when they get home, we can have a discussion and solve the issue rather than finding out a quarter or half the Mm -hmm. year later that they haven't even been going to class. Um, So there are, you know, there is technology today. And we, again, I've seen amazing educational systems that work and we got plenty of money as a country i mean we throw it around in all kinds of places why don't we just use a little here it seems seems important to me i mean if i had my way here's another one i would do if i had my way and i think you'd agree with this every kid in that last year of high school or maybe a, a gap year maybe every kid in america would have to do one year of military service now it doesn't have to be that they're deployed. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is they get all the benefits, the discipline, the knowledge, um, the ability to, I don't know, repair a vehicle, um, put together a weapon. Like there's some simple basic things that every kid should learn in a highly disciplined or like that. That makes sense to me. Mm. By the way, that's another there's another uh, now uh, people are going to be pissed off when I say this, but you could easily the, the military machine is a big machine. And, and you know, you could make arguments about things where you know, places where they fail, um, but they're highly successful in a lot of areas. Why not? Why not take some of that knowledge and some of that machine and I don't know, infuse it into schools? That's what I would do. Yeah, I mean, the discipline part is certainly something that's lacking. Um, and, you know, what discipline really allows for, it's not, pe- people think about it in this very, you know, uh, uh, fatalistic for its own sake discipline, because discipline, you know, you know it's, it's almost tautology, like you're appealing to it for its own sake. But the reality is, is what discipline allows for is more decentralized control over a, a unit, whatever it happens to be, whether it's in the military or whether it is like your sales team or whatever the fuck, right? <clears throat> what it really allows for is everyone's on the same page, following the same rules, performing the same activities with the same standard. So the unit itself becomes plug and play. The leadership, the middle management inside of that leadership also becomes plug and play. It becomes consistent and repeatable, which is really important. Um, and what it also allows is for the manager, the top-level managers, to let the middle managers take more risk, right, in that controlled environment because things are so disciplined. There's, there's a, the, intrinsically, there's a safety net there. And this is the same thing with uh, in the social sphere. 
you, if your kids are disciplined and you know they make good decisions, they take risks but not stupid ones, then go, go walk to school, right? You're not dumb. Do that. And then that kid is empowered to make better and better decisions as life goes on because they've actually put they, – they've, they've tested their mettle to some degree, right? Um, <clears throat> I think that the foreign language requirement in high school should be removed. Um, and that's typically four semesters. I think those should all be – some kind of service, whether it's community service or civil service or military service, if they want to go to basic training their junior year, a lot of people do that uh, and just do that'll satisfy that requirement. And I think language should be moved to elementary school where it fucking belongs. When kids actually, when the when the soft palate begins to form, because there's no way they're learning the language correctly when they're learning it at 16 to 30, to 25 years old in, in high school and college, it just doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? That makes a lot of sense. My our children, we we were lucky. And anybody listening, like there are amazing apps out there. If you start at a young age and those kids, again, because they're addicted to the phone, yeah. engage, forcefully engage, at least it was that way in, in our household, in, in using those apps every single day, they become fluent in a language very quickly. Oh, yeah. And it's cheap, too. Like one of our sponsors is Babbel. It's like, I think, $9 a month or something like that. And you, yeah. like all the kids can use the same account. You could learn, teach them whatever language you want, right? They have like uh, 30 languages on there or some shit. It makes a lot more sense to do that from ages, I would say 4 to 12 is where you should really start that process depending on the kid. Trying to pick up a foreign language with all the other stuff going on in high school at 14 to 18, that's shit, it's not going to happen, man. I mean, how many, what, did you remember anything you learned in a foreign language class in high school? Because I sure as shit don't. I don't. (laughs) I don't, yeah. I mean, what a total waste of time, but that was four semesters. Right. That's two, uh, uh, two years of your life, basically, that an hour and a half, three times a week was dedicated to this completely pointless activity. That's a lot of time to just waste like that when you could be, you know, learning some real life skills like you get you get a, a semester credit, three credits or whatever it is for going to a soup kitchen and seeing what real poverty looks like. So when you get out into the real world, you're not like, oh, woe is me. My life sucks. Like, no, actually, you're in the top one percent of the world right now, buddy, because most of the I, world I, lives on most of the world lives on a dollar seventy five or less per day. I couldn't agree more. I'm, 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 I'm with you. You know, a guy said to me recently, he said, you know, the problem with my kid. I said, no, what's the problem? He said, my five car garage. <laughs> he's right yeah well you mentioned okay. the the tech that's available it, you it didn't used to be like that you're absolutely right it used to be like <laughs> like kids like me for example would say oh it's a, everything's good until the report card came and my dad's like everything is not good <laughs> clearly you haven't been doing anything uh the tech exists now but you the the difference today is that you still have to engage as a parent right like i it, I know plenty of people who have access to this tech to, to review their kids' homework every day, and they don't do it. Um, I, I was working in, um, in politics in California back in the day, maybe, let's see, 12 years ago. We did this research study about educational outcomes, right, for all demographic, all possible demographics. So uh, gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, whether they were an immigrant or not. Um, social class, and then uh, uh, household income. The number one predictor of academic success was parental involvement. It was the only one that outshined everything else. There were poor kids who were doing well. There were rich kids who were doing poorly, so on and so forth. Every race, 
you would see it, it was just dots all over the place, except for when it came to, I can't remember the exact questions, but one of them was, do you review your child's homework uh, once a week or more was one of the questions. And that is up in the 80th percentile of academic performance. It's the only one that was up that high. And it makes, and it makes sense. And, and the software that I described helps, um, helps make that even easier. So, so as a parent, whether you have time or, you know, no longer an excuse, right? Mm. Um, easy, easier to lean in. Yeah, I, I, we were crazy. My wife and I were crazy people at, at a young age. They were, they were doing, I had met two very, very successful kids, brothers uh, on Wall Street. They did very well on Wall Street. And I was always intrigued as to find out how they grew up, how they were parented so that I could apply some of that to our household. And this one kid said to me, my mom used to make me do the next year's work each summer. And I thought, makes perfect sense. I mean, there's plenty of time during the summer, especially when you're looking at them staring at devices. And so we started doing that. We started getting ahead of the next year and it really changed the game. And, and it requires a parent to lean in. By the way, I must've had 3,700 fights at minimum to get them to do their Mandarin on their phone every day. It was a battle every single day, but, and it requires work as a parent. How did you uh, how do you adjudicate that argument? I mean, what happens when they just start screaming at you in Mandarin? You know what I mean? I guess that I guess you win technically because <laughs> they know the damn language. Yeah, no, they 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 speak the language. They're fluent. Um, it was either do it or you lose your phone. Right? The phone is so powerful, you can get everything you want out of them. If if the risk is that they're going to lose their phone, we at, at death camp one year, I had a soft moment and I gave them back their phones for an hour to call their parents. And I gave them ice cream, two things that I would never do, but I was doing it. It was not a study. I wasn't planning on this. All the ice cream melted because the phone was so much more important to them. They didn't even go get the ice cream. That shows you how addictive the phones are. I, you know, there's something really sinister about that, not intentionally, but an outcome because we do crave that socialization, right? We want to be, like we're, we're communal, uh, communal creatures. We want to be around each other. That's why we build civilizations to protect that and scale that ability to be social and, amongst each other. And, you know, there are physiological effects from that, right? Good ones rather than poor ones. So, you know, death scrolling on your phone or playing some little fucking game is giving you plenty of dopamine, but what's it doing for your serotonin and melatonin? You know what I mean? Like, uh, 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 you, and then you combine that with all the gut health issues that people have these days, uh, where most of the serotonin is made. And it's no wonder, like we, we are seeing depression on a scale now, depression, mental health and, and suicidal ideation and attempts, even among some of the more historically resilient groups like teenage girls, right. Are starting to see problems with this, which, whereas never, I know that, that show, uh, what the fuck was it called? That Netflix show. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, um, I can't remember I, yeah. what it was. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I know the the main character that was a female. But historically speaking, that's usually a young male being violent or, or being suicidal, not a female, right? I think that was just Netflix, uh, you know, doing their woke thing. But it is becoming true. I think that I think teenage girls are the fastest growing subset 
of suicidal ideation and, and attempts now, right? So even the more resilient groups are getting touched by this stuff now. And it's, there's, there's plenty of factors, right? Like our hormones are all fucked up. There's all kinds of shit going on. But this lack of direct human interaction and contact with one another and not just the contact itself, but the pursuit of it and the things that we build in pursuit of it, like women build good inner social skills, men build creative skills like building shit and learning to protect people. These historically very important skills are now being lost. We're becoming weaker. I, um, yeah, I, I was at a, one of our races this week and it's going to sound self-serving and promotional. So I don't, I don't mean it to. And lately when I go to our events, I have a camera and I'm just asking people, tell me your story. Mm. How'd you end up here? And the stories are so unbelievable. Uh, just yesterday, uh, a woman lost her kid, mm. lost her best friend, started drinking, really dark place, marriage falling apart, finds the races and turns everything around. And I've got thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of stories and you scratch your head and you're like, I don't understand. I just, I just build some obstacles. I put some flagging some barbed wire. How could it be that this profoundly changes so many lives? And it's for the reasons you said, right? They're, they're coming together. It's basically church. They're coming together. There's sunlight. It's forcing them to put down the drink, put down the cookie, go to bed early. They're losing some weight so they feel good. They're starting to pay attention to what they eat. Phone doesn't do that. No. No, it's all it's 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 all the uh, the second and third order effects of having to do those things that you know have developed us evolutionarily over the last couple hundred thousand years, right? Like we have, I've got to be, you know, this amount of strong or this amount of clever or whatever it is to be able to perform in society. Um, otherwise, I get left behind. <clears throat> and I'm sure you've seen some of this stuff is so obvious. It's it's so obvious that it it boggles the mind almost. I mean, I, it's the 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 only thing I can really say is that these devices have way more control than even we can admit now, frankly. Because <clears throat> I'm sure you've seen this data, but just walking at a brisk pace for 11 minutes a day—that's one 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 ten minutes plus one—reduces the chance of heart disease by over 50 percent, right? just walking for 11 minutes a day. Like you can't take your lunch break and, and eat it while you're walking around the building a couple of times, 11 minutes a day, and you will reduce the risk of heart disease by 50%. Meanwhile, 38% of Americans are either diabetic or in pre-diabetes, right? Type two. The, the, these, it, it's like we're on fire and there's uh, an oil drum and a water drum and we just keep going go that that oil drum looks pretty good and let's go check that out like i, I don't i don't understand how <sighs> I, I give a, i give a great analogy i say imagine if you walked into your house first of all let's agree that we're animals you're an animal mm -hmm. i'm an animal we could wear we could wear sweatshirts and hats and do, and and have microphones and screens in front of us At the end of the day we're animals you walk into your house and your dog another animal is sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette she's painted her nails she's having a drink she's scrolling on her like that would be a pretty weird scene but somehow that's how we're living 
it is pretty bizarre. I mean, <clears throat> and it was kind of a trope in the eighties and nineties, like, okay, we're all comfortable now. And the, the, all these people are trying to go back out to nature and camp and hike and all this bullshit. Now it's like, what are you doing? Thought we were done with that. Like, well, maybe there was a purpose for all that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so you've, uh, what, what was it that made you decide to start Spartan? Well, I, let's go way back. So okay. my parents get divorced. I'm like 11 years old. I'm in Queens. I want to level up like these guys that have rolls, $100 bills in their pocket. You know, how do I make money? My neighbor, who's the head of the banana organized crime family, says, hey, come over to my house on Saturday. You're going to clean my swimming pool. So I go over there, show up at 8 o'clock, 8 a.m. He says, he says, Joe, I'm going to teach you a couple of lessons. Pretty bizarre coming from a mob boss. But he says, um, on time is late. You're supposed to be here at 8. You get here at 7.45. Number two, if you're going to clean the pool, which I'm paying you for, you should also straighten up the shed, the lawn furniture, clean the window, stuff I'm not paying you for. Make yourself invaluable. And then number three, never ask for money. You'll get paid if you do a good job. So anyway, those things stuck with me. And I was a hustler. And they needed somebody they could trust in their backyards. And before you know it, I built it to about 700 customers. Wow. I made a lot. Of, yeah, it was, it was a big business. I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but eventually we were doing concrete work and brick work and rebuilding houses and putting in windows. And I really felt like I had, I had made it, you know, and, and, and all my customers were, were talked about, were whispered about everywhere. So I was getting to hang out with all those guys and and then I learned about Wall Street. I, uh, I graduated college. I was still running my business. And I learned about this place on the other side of the river called Wall Street. And there were a lot of people making a lot of money there. So I sold my business to the guys that worked for me. They were, they were immigrants. This is interesting because I had hired over the years building that business lots of kids from the neighborhood. But none of them had the work ethic I needed. Mm. And then I stumbled upon some Polish immigrants. These guys were unbelievable. I mean, they, they showed up before me. They stayed later than me. If we got in at 11 o'clock at night working. They stayed an extra hour and cleaned the truck. They just wanted more hours. They never asked for a day off. It was, it, they, it was like having robots. It was awesome. And, and so that's the level that I wanted to play at. Those are the kind of people I wanted to be around. But anyway, when, when I sold the business, I sold it to them. They're multimillionaires now. They've done incredibly well 30, 30 plus years later. And I went to Wall Street and and I fumbled around and I learned something really interesting because I didn't know anything about finance at the time. I, I knew how to run my business. And because I didn't know anything, because I had a really creative outlook on things, I I saw some some stuff that others didn't see mm. while I was sitting on a trading desk. I was working on the New York Stock Exchange. And, and I was able to start my own company there and with a slightly different twist that folks that were properly trained did not see. And, and it worked and it, and it worked in a big way. And while I was, while I was running that business and building that business on wall street, I, as a way to remain sane and feel healthy and alive, because I felt great when I was cleaning pools and mixing cement and laying brick and, and doing physical labor in sunlight and sweating every day. I felt great. I didn't feel so great under fluorescent lights in front of a screen all day getting yelled at. Mm. 
I, I found uh, adventure racing. I found these crazy races all over the world. Uh, the Iditarod in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. By, you know? and, and so I did all these races and I felt alive and I started roping people in. I would lie to people to come do them with me. And they were incredibly transformative, <laughs> incredibly addictive. You're like tricking your friends into coming to this bullet, like going to Moab and running for fucking three days. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would. That's what I would do. I people would. I'd get people up at five in the morning on the farm in Vermont, and they'd say, "Hey, Joe, you, you said we were having a barbecue this weekend. Why do I have to get up five in the morning?" I said, "Well, we got to carry the barbecue to the top of the mountain." And they didn't know they were the ones being barbecued, but but we had a, we had a lot of fun over those years. I did it. For many many years and then that led to selling my business on wall street and and focusing on uh, building this company called spartan and what's the uh i guess what's the ethos of the company like if you had a mission statement i guess what would it be well i didn't start out this way but but as i started seeing people come across the finish line with these transformative stories that i just described it became we want to change 100 million lives and and so every decision we make, anything we do is the guiding light is, will it change lives? Will it change more lives? So it's a big, bold, audacious goal. It's going to be very hard to reach, but, but that's, that's the goal. And so that's how we operate. It's, you know, whether we, whether the team stays late one night and waits for that last very overweight first time racer to come in um, because it's going to change their life or, or doing a podcast or, you know, whatever we do, it's to change lives. And how do you, uh, th this is kind of in the weeds, but how do you get somebody from the couch to the race? Cause you know, um, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but there is a, there's some, there are a bunch of different barriers to entry from devices to the comfort of life. And then some people just don't know where to start. You know what I mean? I, I think that's a big intimidating factor for people who are especially later in life trying to get fit or fit again, they just don't know what to do. They remember the shit they did when they were kids, but that's not necessarily relevant anymore. So what, what kind of strategies do you guys have, not just for, I guess, general generalized motivation, but also articulating to them, like, you can fucking do this. It might take you some amount of time. The, the worse off you are now, the more time it might take you, but there you can get there, right? Because it's pretty much anybody can do this. Yeah, you know, if if we owned a, a company that was putting on uh, hockey hockey competitions, I would say pretty much everybody can't do this. Like, pretty pretty hard to you know strap on skates and learn how to skate and and slap a puck on on ice. But but the reality is, as the species we are, everybody could climb, crawl, run, jump. Like we can all do it. Mm -hmm. And and it, it's very challenging to convince one person. Like, for 20 plus years, I've lied to people to get them to do these events because because the human brain is designed to avoid discomfort at all costs. We, we, we don't want to expend too much energy. We want to survive as a species. So our brain says, oh, don't do that. That's going to be that's going to require too much energy. Mm. Don't go to the gym in the morning. Don't get in that cold water. Don't eat that. Like it's guiding us in the opposite direction we need to go. If this was the 1600s or the 1700s or 3000 years ago, that, that, that was a good fail safe mechanism we had in our head, right? Because life was life was hard. We might freeze to death if we went outside. We might starve to death, but that's not the case today. So trying to market and advertise to people that are inherently avoiding discomfort, 
that are staring at a phone that have a climate controlled living room with Netflix, that is a tough fucking sell. Yeah. Like, like I, if I was selling handbags and M&Ms, it'd be a lot easier. Right. But we're, we're selling discipline. We're selling commitment. We're selling pain, suffering, like tough sell. Um, when people see the imagery, the videos, and they hear the stories and they see their friends, it gets people going. Yeah. It doesn't get, it doesn't get eight, 8 billion people going, but you know, we've had 10 million people do, do a race. I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be a market. I, it's just, there's just, people just don't understand why they would even want to do something hard. It doesn't even make sense. So what, I guess that's part of the challenge then, right? Is to explain to people why that makes sense. Now there's some people doing it. Rogan does it pretty well. Huberman does it pretty well. I mean, just from a, from a physiological standpoint, but I think people know that. I don't, I don't think that's a mystery to people that if you, well, if I eat better and work out more, I'm going to feel better and have a better life. I, I think people know that. Right. And they still, they opt into the other side. Um, uh, and you're, uh, we are animals for sure. Um, and we have developed bad habits pretty rapidly since let's say the 1950s, probably when the food pyramid came out. Um, which was, uh, yeah, that's another example of why not to trust governments, but, uh, yeah, <clears throat> that, that, that part. And then, you know, office life working in the office, but we can definitely rewind. I mean, we've seen how quickly we've devolved into, uh, just a diabetic heart disease lifestyle. Um, but it doesn't take very long to rewire the way your brain works. People think of it as a very daunting challenge, but, um, generally speaking, habit forming takes 10 to 12 weeks of consistent effort. Um, not 21 days, like some, you know, snake oil salesmen used to write in their books, but, uh, about 10 to 12 weeks on, on average is what it takes. And in that sh very short amount of time, you know, uh, uh, you will feel quite a bit different. I, I think not just physically, but your emotional state becomes quite a bit better as well. Um, we, 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 we have the secret weapon. And, and again, I am not, I don't mean to, to sound like a salesperson here, but the, I, let's think about Rocky one and then Rocky two. And it was intriguing to me at a young age that Rocky, he, he nearly won that first fight, or maybe it was the second fight that he beat Apollo Creed and he had a lot of money and he had the house and all of a sudden he started to relax. Mm. And that's, and that's what we do, right? We, we relax when we don't have a date on the calendar, when we don't, we don't have a fight coming up. It, boxers, team, you know, other sports teams, billionaires, everybody starts to relax and become complacent. And what we do as a company is we put a date on the calendar for you. We, we put a fight on your calendar. And when that happens, those t 10 or 12 weeks that you're talking about, they start kicking into gear because you're afraid you're going to get your ass kicked <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't eat right, if you don't. Right. So like that's that's what works. It's it's hard to have the discipline, the commitment. It's hard to change your habits if you if you don't have a purpose, you don't have something you're going. We have a wedding business in Vermont on our farm. And, and my wife and I always found it interesting that these brides and grooms, these future brides and grooms would show up. And they looked one way. And then a year later, when it was time to have the wedding, they looked a hell of a lot better because they had a date on the calendar. They had to look good for the photos. 
So that's what we do. I mean, just calendaring, like setting goals for yourself is so, it's such an easy thing to do, you know? Um, uh, it, it's even the New Year's resolution stuff, which I know never lasts for people for some reason or another, but I think you maybe make very, uh, like, more specific and realistic goals for yourself at New Year's. Like, I'm going to go to the gym for 20 out of the next 30 days or something like that, right? Um, I think is probably a little bit more helpful than I'm going to lose weight in 2024. Because that, what the fuck does that mean? That means you've got all the way until the end of the year to accomplish this very, uh, I don't know, amorphous goal or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, you got a book called 10 Rules for Resilience. And I, you cover a lot of stuff about this. And uh, it's, I, I like this book because something that I tell people a lot is, um, you know, we, for some reason, we've come to expect, and I think it's, you know, probably a function of our generalized comfort these days, but we've come to expect that life is going to get easier as it goes on. And it's just not true, right? I mean, we become more comfortable, but the truth about life is that the weight never gets lighter. You just get stronger, right? And if you're not doing those things to make yourself stronger, then the weight is going to get heavier and heavier, right? So tell me about this book, 10 Rules for Resilience, because I think it's one that people need to read. Because it's not just about the individual. It's about like how to make your family more resilient as well. Yeah, it's a lot of the stuff you, you and I have been talking about. It it, it starts with, you know, you got to know your why. You got to find your purpose, not just you individually, but but you sit down with your family and, and teach your kids. Like, all right, why why do we do this? What's our what's our family crest? What do we what do we believe in? And then just helps walk the whole family through this journey or the reader through this journey on how to become successful, however you define success whether it's I want to make a bunch of money or I want to be incredibly fit or I want to be the best dad ever or whatever, whatever that definition is for you regarding success, it explains and gives you the tools you need um, to get through the troughs, life's, life's difficult periods where you're getting knocked down. And by the way, everybody's getting knocked down. And so the more tools you have, the more you understand the journey and the map, the more likely you're going to survive and come out the other side and be successful. I, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, we had a tough time, no surprise, as a company when COVID hit, we got wiped out. We we lost over $50 million. We had to borrow money from the government, the PPP. I mean, absolute nightmare. And I'm still fighting coming out of it now just because we got shut down in 45 countries about a year ago the wall street journal called and they want to do a cover story in the bankruptcy section on how joe is not paying his bills not going to make it and that's a low point i mean that's a tough phone call to get because you're in a business where you're trying to give people confidence to get excited about a venture holding and and so I, it couldn't it couldn't be a worse person to call me with a worse you know message hmm. but i knew the book and i knew the journey and i knew the trough the deep trough i call it the valley of death that we all go into when we're going through something hard and i realized that oh these are just the naysayers because when you're when you're in the valley of death let's say you're training for a marathon or you're married you know getting married or mar you, we, we go into this valley of death and then the naysayers pile on and they say, oh, I told you not to run that far. You're too old and your knees were good. I told you not to marry that girl. Right? I told you business was too hard. 
And so the Wall Street Journal was just a naysayer. And I dusted off. It was hard to do. I dusted off and grinded my teeth. And, you know, we got through the next day and the next day and the next day. And we're still here. Yeah, I like what you said about um, just the goal setting part. Finding, I mean, we talk a lot about purpose on the show uh, in, a, in, a, in many different ways, but it it, it is something that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's relevant at the very small and very large levels as well. Like no matter if you're planning your the next hour of your life or you're planning the next 20 years of your life, um, Eisenhower used to say that plans are nothing but planning is everything. What he meant by that was that, uh, well, another thing that somebody uh, uh, that uh, uh, Patton used to say, like no plan survives first contact, right, with the enemy. Of course, plans are going to change very rapidly as you run into life and circumstances and stuff like that. But the process of planning simply gives you a, a roadmap, but more importantly than the map is the direction, right? Because if you're heading nowhere, that's exactly where the fuck you're going. And, you know, we, we just kind of walk in circles a lot. Um, we're comfortable at home. We like to walk in circles and every now and again, we'll walk a little bit farther outside of our circle. And if we run into any kind of resistance, we retreat back to the circle. Um, and this is the first generation, I think, or the first, let's say, 100 years in human history where we've done that. And we're seeing the, the, the impact of that. And it isn't necessarily what you thought it would be because <clears throat> kids are moving farther and farther away from home. I think the average, I think the average distance, travel distance between an adult child and an adult parent in like 1950 was 14 miles. And now it's like 240 miles, right? So that, that includes people that live in the same town plus people that are all over the, the country now. So it hasn't resulted in a closer knit family staying closer to home. We are more we are more decentralized from our support and social systems than we ever have been before. But we are also risk averse at the same time. And maybe that's a function of one another. I, I've heard a lot of stuff about this. People talking about like if you're able to keep your entire family relatively close, like generational households uh, where the kids see the grandparents a lot and stuff like that. It, it seems to be that that's a quite a bit better solution if you're able to do it than, you know, just being spread out all over the place. I think there's that part of that purpose, that why is reinforced every day by having the people most important right around you all the time. I think that's something that we've lost. Yeah. As you were describing it, I was thinking back to my young age, even when I was running the pool business, being able to stop by grandma's house, by grandpa's house, grab lunch, grab a dinner, seeing everybody on Sunday, seeing like, that was awesome. And and even my family's lost that. We're, we're in completely different places, but that is, those are great memories. So I agree with you. I wonder how we can't do that again. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen on devices, obviously. Um, and look, you know, we live in a different time, so maybe you're not going to, maybe your industry doesn't exist near your parents or something like that, but we've got to figure something out here. We have to figure out a way to, to reestablish. I mean, it's like, there's the stick and the carrot in life, right? We don't have the stick anymore, frankly. There's no wolves chasing us anymore. We've dealt with that particular problem. Existential threats pop up in the form of you know, diseases and natural disasters from time to time, sometimes political disasters. But for the most part, we're pretty insulated from all that stuff. Um, and the carrot has gone from 
you know, good food to corn syrup, right? So we're, we're fucked on both ends here. And something's got to be done about that. Like we have to reevaluate what it is that motivates us, both stick and carrot. And there is no stick for the most part. So we have to be really conscious about the carrots we choose, right? Because right now we're on a pretty bad track. They're pretty sweet carrots and <laughs> and they're and they're uh, rotting our teeth. I mean, they're just like rotting our teeth, giving us cancer, fucking up our hormones, diabetes, yeah. all this stuff. Um, and it's, you know, I think a lot of the solutions to all these things are pretty similar. It's why I like um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the so-called self-help books, if you want to call them self-help, but like uh, Jordan Peterson's books, um, I would say Greg Lukanoff books, your book on resilience, things like that. Um, there's a lot of overlap between like family and your personal life and business as well. I think a lot of these principles apply kind of across the board there. And you've been pretty successful in business. And now you've got this, this show coming out on CNBC. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. So the show on CNBC was, could we do this for companies? Could we take them, bring them to the farm in Vermont, beat the shit out of them. And in the process, shine a mirror in their face so they can see their problems. I think you said it best just a minute ago where, you know, we tend to get into this, I don't know, this place where we're just doing circles and we're complacent and we might think we know the problems in our company, but we're not addressing them. And the farm attempts to expose them and bubble them to the surface and, you know, fix your company the same way we fix individuals or families. And this was out in the spring of this year, right? I think, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is there going to be a second season? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. TV TV is like catching uh, lightning in a bottle. I've had, I think, three primetime television shows. Ro the Rock took one of them from me, so we'll cross our fingers. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it was a good show, so I, hopefully uh, you can do it. And it's, I mean, I'm sure people that work in the business community have been involved in team-building exercises before, but, um, you know, very low-stake team building exercises right yeah, like there, there, there's some low level risk of embarrassment for performance and lack of effort i guess but for the most part it's you're not going to get you're not going to break a sweat in those team building exercises i think it's important for people to break a sweat around each other you know what i mean there, there's something about putting a bunch of people regardless of who they are race gender uh, all that bullshit and letting them perform at something because a natural sorting happens Right. And not just a hierarchy, not just like, oh, this guy should be in charge. And this person is obviously uh, not not fit for leadership. But like this person is really good at this particular task. This person is really good at this particular task in a business world. Like it's the same. And the same thing goes with uh, being a like a, a coach of a sports team. Good coaches will. Well, I, let me rephrase that. Great coaches will put their people in a position to win. Right they will tailor their strategy to the roster that they have. And look, it's not a perfect world. You're not always going to have all the pieces you want. There's a finite amount of resources out there. But, uh, you know, and it's the same thing with a military unit as well. In a perfect world, I want to have all the stuff I want. I'm not going to because life is fucked up, right? So I got to deal with what I have. You can't make those decisions unless you know who people are, like really know who they are. 
And I think putting them through high stress events, high stress, but relatively low consequence events is a really important way of figuring out who people are. That's why we put people through military selections. Now, years ago, prior to Spartan being born, I would get a lot of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. They'd send me traders that were going to be handling hundreds of millions of dollars on a trading desk. And they'd send them up to the farm with me for a while to, to basically do that selection and find out, you know, how do they react? And, and so I agree with you that a thousand percent. And, and when you do it as a group, which, which again, we see every weekend somewhere in the world with one of our events, um, friends become humble. They get, well, you know, you, you get people together in a foxhole, you build bonds for life because all the bullshit goes away. Yep. Pretense is gone. Yeah, yep. it's just like you, you strip everybody down to their core. And, you know, <clears throat> it, it's I think the, the the bulk of it reveals character, but there's some character building that happens there as well. And it, and it is a, it's just a function of uh, sociology. People don't want to let down people they care about. And it, it makes you, I guess, in, in modern society, that would probably be the stick, right? That level of shame, like shame plays an important role in society. I don't want to let my people down. I don't want to let my family down. You should feel that fucking way. If you don't, you're a piece of shit, to be honest, right? Like if you're okay letting your family down, you're a piece of shit. There's no qualms about that in my mind. So I agree. You know, find that, put that behind you. Make that the fucking lion that's chasing you because there's not a lion chasing you anymore. Uh, I think people could find a lot of motivation there, to be honest. But you got to be open to it. You got to be willing to feel bad about yourself. And then overcome that feeling. Like, you know what? This is in my control. I feel bad about myself because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. That's what that means. Now I can do what I'm supposed to do and I'll feel fine. I, I think that's the reason when, when they sign up for one of our events, that's the reason, the, the primary reason why, why they're eating healthy, going to bed early training, right, is they don't want to be embarrassed. I, I used to say, you'll, you'll like this. We have a, a crazy race we put on every year on the farm called the death race. And, and it is selection. It is just badass torture. The goal is just simply to, to weed out the weak. And every year without fail for the last, oh my goodness, this thing's going on uh, 20 years. The last 20 years, you know, a week before 300 grandmothers all of a sudden die. People can't make it because their grandmother died. And so what I did was I said, you can't compete in this race anymore unless you get an article written in a local newspaper saying that you're doing this event, you're going to finish it. And all of a sudden, miraculously, grandmother stopped dying. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, when you're being held accountable and you're going to be letting people down, or you're going to look embarrassed. Mm. You take things seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of my buddies that run, um, shooting camps and all sorts of other, you know, training camps and, and jujitsu and stuff like that started requiring a down payment, even if it was a small amount of money, like not, not so small that you would forget, but like 90 bucks, right? Something that'll register in your fucking brain just so like, all right, cool. I got to go do this. I, I made a commitment. Here's my, cause you know, part of this new age, we make commitments. Uh, it's almost like uh, when you're out hanging out with your buddies at night and you're like, Hey, you know what? Let's get up and go work out in the morning. Nobody is getting up to go work out in the morning after you've been out drinking all night, you asshole. Uh, but that's the level of commitment. If you actually take that next step, right, expose yourself to the Patel people. This is something I like to say a lot. 
say exactly who you are and what you want to be to in public to other people and then do that thing, right? Like may force yourself into accountability because otherwise you, if there's any quit in your heart, you're going to quit. That's just the way it is. And there's only, there's a cult one. Some people are too dumb to quit for sure. I know plenty of people like that. Uh, I'm not like that. I'll quit something stupid. I'll quit. But if you, if you don't address that before you get there, if you go to selection, you're like, well, we'll see how I do. You're, you've already failed to be honest. Right. Like you, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to pass this if it takes me the rest of my fucking life. That's the attitude right. you have to have. Um, my favorite, um, my favorite analogy, my favorite story around commitment. I don't know if you've ever heard of the marathon monks in Japan. Mm -mm. They, um, they've got a 25 mile trail. Uh, I spent some, a lot of time there, uh, Mount Hiai, and they've got a 25 mile trail that they walk around each day praying with their wooden sandals on and their robes and their head shaved. And so if you and I wanted to become monks there, we would knock on the door and then we would say to them, uh, we'd like to do this. And they'd say, great, shave your head, put on this robe, put on these wooden sandals. And you and I would do a hundred days in a row of this 25 mile trek. And at the end of it, you and I would high five each other and say, that was awesome. We crushed it. We are now monks. And they would say, not so fast. We know you're committed now. Take this sword, take this rope. You have 800 more days to go. And if you decide to quit, you got to kill yourself on the trail. <laughs> that's the kind of commitment we're talking about. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's what I'm into. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> <laughs> I brought my family there. I showed my kids. You see the little tombstones of the people that killed themselves. I'm like, guy's a quitter. You know, you don't want to be a quitter. Yeah, yeah. Cuyahoga. Hogia, maybe? Is that how you see it? Oh, um, Mount Hiai. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't I don't know the pronunciation of of the of the um of the monks. Yeah, it's uh that's pretty yeah. extreme. There's a documentary on this somewhere. I can't remember I've seen it before, but yeah. I can't remember where I watched it before. Um yes. <clears throat> but yeah, that's you know. <laughs> It, you you better want to be something if you're going to set out to do it right. I mean, that's that's important. Um, I was just talking to one of, one of our buddies, Mickey Gall, is a UFC fighter. And he's, there, there are some guys who like the idea of being something and then some who actually love being it, right? And if you're – I think if it's – the more extreme something gets, the more you better love that thing or you're going to quit, right? Like these guys who are – or you're going to get hurt, I guess, in, in these circumstances. But like people who are like trying to fight professionally or climb mountains or something like that and they're kind of half-ass into it, that's that's bad news, man. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be that guy who gets stuck somewhere and or gets your head caved in because you're not doing the right shit. Um, <clears throat> you got to be, be all in. Yeah. You got to have the sword and the rope. Well, speaking of all then, you've got uh, Spartan races all the time, pretty much every weekend throughout the, the year, all over the world. Um, do you guys have anything big coming up, or is it just business as usual right now? I mean, this past weekend, I think we had five events around the world. There's always something somewhere in the world. The sun, I like to say the sun never sets on Sparta, but um, we've got Spartan, we've got Tough Mudder, we've got all the endurance events. What I would propose to your audience is if anybody out there wants to do one of these events, no matter what, I'd love to have them all on the farm, by the way, at the end of June, but but I'll take them anywhere. Just send you an email, and if you can collate and get 
a bunch of folks emails i'll give them all a free race on you sure yeah we'll do that if you can uh i'll 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 make a social media post when this episode comes out and everybody can send me their stuff uh it's a really good idea i appreciate you coming on today and talking about all this uh it's really good for the for the people thanks for having me and uh let's get that one year of uh service figured out in this country absolutely thank you again for coming i really appreciate uh, your attitude and your expertise on these subjects. It's something that America's in dire need of right now. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.